If you enjoyed this program, we need your donation today. Just go to ksvr.org and press the donate button. Thank you. It's now time for Skagit Talks, featuring local news, interviews, and information from around the valley, created with the help of Skagit County community volunteers. Now, KSVR 91.7 presents Skagit Talks. Today is the debut of an occasional series of conversations with longtime Skagitonians called This Skagit Life. Here's Don Wick presenting a conversation with Dr. Andy Anderson. From the Northwest News Network, it's hard to outsmart sea lions, but overrun Pacific Northwest ports keep at it. All this and more on today's edition. Now, This Skagit Life, Dr. Andy Anderson. This Skagit Life. Today, meeting with Dr. Andy Anderson. This is Don Wick. Andy, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. What makes the Skagit special to you? Well, you know, I've been here for 50 years now, and it fits like a comfortable old shoe. <laughs> and uh, and so it, it's, it's part of the, it's the people, the community. It's just just comfortable and a great place to be. It is indeed. What is it about Skagit that drew your, your family here and keeps you here? Well, we we came because I got a, a job offer from Washington, from Washington State University to work at the research station. That happened in 1969. And uh, so we came out here from... Uh, well, both of my wife and I grew up in Oregon and... Uh, We've been uh, Pacific Northwesterners all along, but we spent some time in Texas and some time in Riverside, California, and uh, it was welcoming to be able to come back into the Pacific Northwest. What have you seen change during that time? Wow. Um, There's been a lot of things that changed. When I came here and started research, there was 40,000 acres of peas being grown in the Skagit Valley. And, and it was a very important part of the ag community. And now today, there isn't any peas grown, but there are all kinds of other agricultural activities going on, such as potatoes and blueberries and bulb crops and seed crops. But um, agriculture is constantly changing and uh, we've seen a good share of that take place in the 50 years that we've been here. Pretty diverse then here. Yes, it is pretty diverse. And uh, the big thing that's changed is uh, we went from processing crops where everybody was uh, growing crops for, uh, we had probably uh, somewhere around 15 plus processors here in the valley uh, in the late 60s. And uh, then when I retired in 2000, there was just one processor left. And those things, that's uh, created a tremendous change in the way people did their business. Okay. How would you define your sense of this community? Well, this this is a tight-knit community. And... um, from the agricultural roots, it was one that where people had to work together for 
in flood fights uh, with the Skagit River, and also they work together in uh, uh, cooperating and harvesting their grain crops. And, uh, and so those kinds of things pull the community together quite different than you see in other communities here in, in, in Washington and probably all over. This was a, a, it became a tight-knit community because of the things that they had to cooperate with, with, with each other. Is that uh, any different than your sense of this place? Um, no, I, I think that, that, that uh, this attitude of cooperation, even though people are fiercely independent, there is more attitude of cooperation here than I've seen in many other communities. Yeah. What about the research you were doing uh, at the research station? To tell us about that. Well, I <clears throat> came here to work uh, on vegetable processing crops. And uh, peas, of course, was a major uh, part of my research program. We did a lot of other things. Uh, I also was very involved in plant tissue culture research and and developed the, the first uh, woody plant tissue culture approach of propagating rhododendrons. And uh, we did a lot of other tissue culture projects along the way. We worked in soil fertility aspects of things and in uh, considering uh, bringing in uh, a lot more cover crops for the uh, the health of the uh, the uh, waterfowl that come here and spend the winter. How did you first get into this whole field of agricultural research? Well, I grew up on a small farm in Hood River Valley, and uh, and and I really liked the idea of working in agriculture, and when it it came to the point where I had to realize that I wasn't going to be a farmer. The next best thing would be to be a researcher and work with farmers. <laughs> uh, what part does the Skagit River and Bay play in defining and influencing your community? Well, the Skagit River is the reason why we have this wonderful delta farmland. And so... That is, uh, it is the, the, the creator of, of this farmland, and uh, it was also a major part of the fishing industry. And, um, and uh, when we learned how to dike the rivers, the, the river and along the bay, we were able to reclaim a lot of farmland, and uh, that became a very important part of the agricultural scene. What is your favorite natural place in the Skagit? Oh, wow. Uh, there's just lots of them. We like to take people up to Little Mountain. We like to go up to Mount Erie and uh, be able to see all the scenery around. We love the, the parks along the, the, uh, the sound. Take people to those kinds of places, and we love to go up around Mount Baker and enjoy the so we, it's just got all kinds of wonderful scenery and sights to see. What natural resource in the schedule do you most identify with? Well, we think of uh, being that my roots here are in agriculture, uh, 
I think of the Skagit Valley as, as and the Delta land that is uh, got such wonderful soil and a climate for growing so many different things. What are you doing in your life right now that is particularly meaningful? Well, I've been retired since 2000, and I've found that uh, working in community gardens uh, have been a major uh, enjoyment, and I found that the opportunity to work with community uh, is uh, very satisfying and and uh, it's been uh, really a major part of my life since I retired. That's great. Do you have a memory you would share that is uniquely Skagit? Well, I'd like to, to uh, share with you about what the farmers did when in, uh, right around World War II in, in that period of time. They, uh, they found that some of their vegetable seed crops had dropped in production to about 50% of what had been in the past, and it became actually a, uh, a concern of the federal government because you gotta have places to grow seed of all the different vegetables, uh, and we were a major component of that. And so that was the basis of why the, the, group, the uh, farming community came together and developed this Northwest Ag Research Foundation, which has been a very important part of the success of agriculture here in the in in uh, Skagit Valley, and a fair amount of seed farming here as well. Yes, there is. It's uh, it's a, a major place for the production of spinach, cabbage, and red beet seed. If you had to choose, what's your favorite season in the Skagit? Oh, I like the spring. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's nice to be able to go out and see the daffodils and the tulips and, um, and then just see the crops coming out of the ground and knowing that there's a lot of people who put a lot of faith in the idea that they're going to produce a crop that is going to help them through the rest of the year. Boy, that's a, a pretty special place we have here, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is. And it's got uh, a, a tremendous history. Uh, not in, Even before agriculture became a major, major component here, the forestry industry and the fishing industry uh, were very, very important. And things transitioned from one thing to another. But uh, that's the backbone of, of this community. It is one that is really, really um, able to adapt, use their intelligence, and work together to make things happen. It's a pretty interesting history in, in fishing and forestry and farming, isn't it? Yes, there is. Well, how have abundant natural uh, resources helped shape your life and, and or your profession? Well, you know, um, to be able to work with people who uh, are successful in what they do and are able to adapt when they need to adapt, um, and in the, right at the end of my career in 2000, the ability of this, this uh, community to go from 
a major processing industry to uh, potatoes and blueberries to, to occupy the land and also there was a lot of uh, field corn grown here too uh, to uh, take up a lot of the space that had been used for processing vegetables. And then we had quite a nice increase in, in uh, f fresh produce such as the, a new crop of uh, uh, Brussels sprouts, for instance. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty neat to see these things take place and, and uh, be very successful. Sure is. What in the schedule do people take for granted? In other words, is there something people don't appreciate enough about this place? Well, I don't know. I, I think that, uh, that most people who have been here, there's a lot of people that leave because they can't find work here. But the people who stay become quite convinced that this is a special, spe special place worthy of special care and worthy of working on coming up with solutions. What about the future? Are you hopeful for the future here in the Skagit? Well, I, I think so. I think uh, there's, there has this attitude of finding solutions is pretty prevalent and uh, I believe that that's going to continue on and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic. That's very good. Dr. Andy Anderson, thank you. This Skagit Life, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This is Don Wick with Dr. Andy Anderson for this Skagit Life. Next up is Selected Short Subjects with a local information feature. Back in the annals of history we go digging for personal reminiscences of times past. Hear about the people and stories in their own words as the Skagit Historical Museum presents a Skagit History Moment. Each week we will be sharing stories from various sources published by Skagit County Historical Museum. Educated and politically aware women such as Georgiana Beatty and Eliza Van Fleet of Skagit County must have cheered when the Washington Territorial Legislature ignored the suffrage restrictions in most states and granted women the right to vote on November 23, 1883. The men learned, too late, how well women could organize. On June 13, 1884, they ran a reform ticket for the city council. They voted en masse, and their reform candidates all won. In 1887, a lower appeals court judge ruled that the legislators erred in 1883. The legislators had simply dropped the word male before the word citizens from the voting law, but the judge ruled that the legislators mistakenly assumed that women were citizens. After the appeal was upheld in the Territorial Supreme Court, suffragettes appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The jig was up, however, because the highest U.S. court denied their appeal and upheld the lower court's rulings on August 15, 1888. Washington women did not vote again until the state constitution was amended on November 8, 1910, to grant women the vote. This is Janice Gage for the Skagit County Historical Museum. And now regional news from the Northwest News Network. 
As you might notice, sea lions have made a big rebound in recent years along the West Coast. They're fun to watch from a safe distance, but a headache for some coastal marinas. Correspondent Tom Bonse reports from Westport, Washington, that it's a constant battle to wrangle the smart and protected animals. The wild California sea lions at the Westport Marina are both a tourist attraction and a big nuisance. Visitor Dennis Craig of Olympia watched an adjacent pier nearly sink under the weight of dozens of burly bulls jostling and resting in the sun. It's um, a free zoo, kind of. Just don't pet them. (laughs) The flip side of these flippered fish fiends can be seen in the mounting bill to the marina, including busted docks and electric stanchions and lost business. Sea lions have blocked people from mooring their boats. In other cases, commercial fishermen have to run a gauntlet to get to their vessels. The sea lions even snatched a few pet dogs right off the piers. Westport Aquarium co-owner Mark Mercell volunteers to monitor the sea lions. He's counted up to 200 or 300 on the docks at a time. If a person's walking down the dock and they have a bag in their hand, that sea lion in its mind might think that that person has food and can get aggressive because some people have been feeding them intentionally or unintentionally. The abundance of sea lions has created issues from Nia Bay, Washington, to Brookings, Oregon, occasionally in Puget Sound, too. Westport is not the worst off. Astoria, Oregon attracts the most sea lions by far. The port of Astoria once famously deployed a fiberglass fake orca to scare the sea lions. The replica soon capsized, nearly drowning its operator. Astoria has also tried inflatable air dancers and beach balls, as well as low railings with various plastic attachments. The port director says nothing works for long. Robert Anderson is the marine mammal program manager at the NOAA Fisheries Regional Office in Portland. He says sea lions are following their food supply. The problems in marinas continue because sea lions are smart and will habituate to most deterrence measures. You've got to be pretty persistent about it. And once you apply whatever deterrence method you do, if you walk away, they're pretty much going to come right back. Anderson says when port officials call him for advice on sea lions, he gives a long list of options. You know, you can, you know, definitely irritate and aggravate an animal pretty strongly. I mean, these are durable animals. But there are limits set by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. You cannot do something that results in serious injury or death. In Westport, Washington, the Port Authority has tried using a low-flying drone, noisemakers, water hoses, and a low-voltage electrified mat as countermeasures. It's now considering physical barriers, but wary about the expense. Which means down at the docks, visitor Dennis Craig still has free entertainment while doing some recreational crabbing. You know what, I I don't see anything bad about them one way or the other because we're on their territory, not the opposite. You know, they were here before we started building, so. The mood is less forgiving in the local fishing community and port offices. Frustration is the best description. The federal government allows the states of Oregon and Washington to trap and kill sea lions that feed on endangered fish below Willamette Falls and near Bonneville Dam on the Columbia River, but those lethal control permits are restricted to those places only. Washington's Orca Recovery Task Force sparked talk of possible wider sea lion and seal culling to reduce competition with endangered orcas for food, but it's just talk for now. 
I'm Tom Bonsey in Westport, Washington. Here's the national news. The Public News Service daily newscast for Friday, May the 3rd, 2019. I'm Mike Clifford. It's World Press Freedom Day. We take a look at what's up in the USA. Also on our Friday rundown, climate change at the top of the legislative agenda in New England. Plus, have you heard about the device that could save millions of fish? Topping our news today is United Nations World Press Freedom Day. Events are planned across the globe, but journalists and other experts see recent events as more proof that Americans should consider how to protect their own press freedoms. Janine Relly, a professor at the University of Arizona School of Journalism, says the advent of social media and the current sharp red-blue political divide have created serious challenges to the free flow of information for Americans. In the global rankings of press freedom, the U.S. has slowly fallen. It's been over a couple of years, and some of the reasons are economic, uh, just the fragmentation of media and the lack of sustainability in some cases. Relly says a decade ago, the erosion of press freedoms was studied mostly in other countries as corrupt government officials and others tried to intimidate reporters. In the extreme, she notes that more than 50 journalists worldwide were murdered last year while doing their jobs. Mark Richardson reporting. If you want to learn more, you can check out online at penpen.org. Fighting climate change at the top of the legislative priorities list for many Connecticut environmental groups. More from Andrea Sears. The Connecticut chapter of the Sierra Club wants state lawmakers to promote policies like requiring 100% renewable energy by 2035 and setting a net zero target for greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. According to Chapter Chair Anne Gadois, those are goals that can be met. The way we could do this is moving away from fossil fuels, moving away from gas, moving away from oil, moving away from coal to renewable energy such as wind power, solar power. Bills have been introduced to expand procurement of energy from offshore wind and to improve net metering of solar power. I'm Andrea Sears reporting. And Tennessee lawmakers have passed controversial bills that would give some parents vouchers to send their children to private schools. The Tennessee Education Savings Account Act now heads to the governor's desk. It would give parents in two of the state's highest population districts up to $7,300 a year for private school tuition and expenses. Brad Fiscus is a former public school teacher and board member with the group Pastors for Tennessee Children. He says other states have tried similar school voucher programs and have ended up funneling millions of dollars in taxpayer money away from public schools. If we look at other states, what we find is a state like Indiana over the last seven years is projected to spend $685 million on educational savings accounts programs. That money is is then being drawn out of what would have gone to the local school districts. Supporters of the voucher idea say low-income parents should have the option to send their kids to private schools that they couldn't afford without financial assistance. But opponents point out that vouchers don't cover all the cost of a private school education, creating built-in hardships for some families. I'm Nadia Ramlagan. A new MIT study aims to capture how much people would pay for free online services like Facebook, Wikipedia, and YouTube. More now from Laura Rosbrow Tellum. The researchers' premise is that because a country's gross domestic product measures spending, it fails to include much of the digital economy, which is free. To calculate this gap, they asked 65,000 people in online surveys what they would need to be paid to stop using various digital services for one month. Respondents in the U.S. said, for instance, they'd want $48 on average to give up using Facebook for a month. 
Study co-author Avinash Kalis says he didn't anticipate the responses. We were really surprised by the magnitude of these numbers. We did not expect them to be as high as we found. The study offers a new category of GDP, known as GDP-B for benefit, to try to quantify the economic impact of services that aren't included in the traditional GDP. It's part of a growing body of research that suggests the whole concept of gross domestic product may need an update. Finally, our Tramel Gomes reports the public can weigh in on fishing boats using a device that could save millions of deep water fish from dying of the bends during catch and release. Fishermen often discard fish that aren't their target species when they exceed catch limits or when the fish are too small. Federal research says of the six reef fish species caught most in the eastern Gulf of Mexico, about 11% that are thrown back die after release. That's more than 7.5 million black sea bass in the South Atlantic from 2012 to 2016. Captain Jimmy Hull, a commercial fisherman in Ormond Beach, says those fish suffer a preventable fate similar to what can happen to scuba divers who ascend too quickly. When you bring them to the surface, all of the gases in their body and all of their organs expand and blow up. And so the effects of this can be, uh, it'll kill the animal. Or they won't be able to swim back down when you release them. The fish can make their way back safely to deep water using a weighted clip called a descender. Hull thinks it should be a required device on anglers' boats. And the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council is taking public comment on the proposal through May 10th. The proposed rule would only require fishermen to have these devices available for use on their vessels. Support for this reporting was provided by the Pew Charitable Trusts. I'm Mike Clifford. Thanks for wrapping up your week. News and inclusion with Public News Service. We are member and listener supported and we're online at publicnewsservice.org. Thanks for listening to today's edition. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire and edited by Jay Charles. You've been listening to Skagit Talks, the community information and news program on KSVR, Skagit Community Radio. If you are enjoying today's Skagit Talks, we need your support now. Please donate today. Go to ksvr.org and press the donate button. Thank you. KSVR presents Radio Theater Project, radio dramas and comedies for the modern ear. An anthology of original and adapted stories is performed by the Skagit Valley Radio Theater Company on Sundays at 6 p.m. on Skagit Community Radio. 